And hello and welcome to another edition of the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast. Today's a very exciting podcast. We've got, we're going to talk Cup of Excellence with the Managing Director of the Alliance for Cup of Excellence, and that is Darren Daniels based in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Oh, yeah. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Did I get that right? You're the Managing Director of the Alliance for Coffee Excellence? Yeah. Yeah, executive director um, uh, of the the program, and have been um, uh, been here a little over three years. Uh, and um, it's uh, a program that I'd been affiliated with uh, years ago when I was a coffee buyer for a couple other coffee companies, both here in Portland with Stumptown and another uh, company in Colorado. Um, so I've been affiliated with it since almost since the beginning, around 2003. I got involved, but um, but yeah, yep, that's correct. Uh, before I ask you too many too many questions about that, I want to know a bit a bit more about you, Darren. Before before we get into that, what are your interests outside of coffee? You've been working in the industry for over th- for nearly thirty years. Uh, in in my sort of digging through your LinkedIn and <laughs> reading articles about you, what what, what are your insight interests outside of coffee? Uh, well, you know, I uh, having grown up in the Northwest in this area. Uh, I really like to be outside. It's a beautiful part of the U.S., so I really like to hike and mountain bike and and um, just yeah, just outdoor stuff is is definitely uh, something I, I love to do. And and um, I uh, prior to being in coffee, I was actually involved in literature, studied literature in college, and and uh, specifically writing and and um, working with a, a program in Colorado called Naropa University and studied poetry and. And uh, ran a little. I had a little zine. I was running a small press magazine uh, featuring uh, nonfiction authors and other poets, and um, had a, a little magazine called Spike that I ran for a few years. And then I had a, a publishing company called City Full Press, and we would just be publishing various out of print books and books that were, you know, I kind of felt like should be brought back into print. And so I, you know, I love literature and language, and and uh, definitely a big music you know, love all forms of music and uh, love listening to music. So those are some of the kind of outside interests that, that I have. So, yeah. Yeah. So you went to college in Colorado. Yeah. Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. I went to U of O here in Eugene, which is just South of Portland and, and then uh, got my degree in at uh, Naropa, which was uh, kind of a funky school that was started by a Tibetan Buddhist uh, Rinpoche who had traveled to the U S and started a, 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 it was called an institute at that point, which was focused on Western arts and Eastern philosophy or Eastern, um, you know, um, aspects of like Buddhism. And so it was, a, it was a pretty, pretty funky school. And I think we only had about like a hundred students year round when I was first there. And now it's like 2000 students, much bigger school. Um, but it, it was a, just a different approach to, to education. And, and um, so that was, that was a really, really cool experience. There was some you know, some writers that I really looked up to that were in that program when I was when I was there studying in the late 80s and early 90s, a long time ago. But a lot of the beat writers like, uh, you know, like Allen Ginsberg and uh, who helped he helped form the writing program, the school, um, um, the, the curriculum program that was that was there. So got to meet a lot of really interesting people from that era of the of the beat generation era of writers and um, paint, a lot of painters and musicians would come through there. So it was a melting pot of really interesting uh, American and European artists. So, yeah. It does sound like that. And I, I think when I think of American universities, I think of you know, University of Oregon, big NCAA teams and stuff like that. But it is refreshing to hear you've <laughs> had that 
experience with the small school and um, did you say it had a Buddhist influence? Yeah, I mean, it was a non-sectarian college, so it wasn't like a religious college or, you know, anything quite like that. Um, but they did have like a religious studies major and, and they had Buddhist studies as a, 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 a master's program. So some fairly unusual, uh, you know, degrees uh, that wouldn't be traditional in other American universities or really probably any universities, but um, um, and like dance therapy. And then my program was writing and uh, poetics. So uh, very non-traditional. <laughs> so well, let's get into the coffee stuff now. What was, what was your first job in coffee? Uh, first job was uh, here, not too far away from where I'm at now, in uh, in Eugene as a barista, and uh, started in uh, about the mid '80s, uh, slinging espresso, and um, kind of uh, made my way up within the same company to kind of get into the roasting department and help the, the, the buyer and the roaster. But, but yeah, basically a barista. Yeah. Yeah. What are the, what are the differences in, let's say for one espresso now and back then, do you think you had some espressos back then that are just as good as some espressos you've had now, or is it not even close? Oh, I think, I think we've come a long ways. I, I, I do. I do feel really proud of the company where I work because uh, the gentleman, um, Paul Layton um, and his wife, uh, the business was called Coffee Corner. And he was buying some really high quality coffees in the late seventies and early eighties and excellent Kenyas and Yemen. And, and, uh, and he really loved blends and he made some incredible blends that were obviously, you know, blend house blends, espresso blends. And, he also was, you know, I, I obviously Australia is kind of probably one of the most important places for espresso in the world, really, um, or the development of espresso as we know it and the consumption of it for sure. Um, but, you know, the idea that he was pulling ristrettos and really small shots, short shots back then, um, most of the other companies were doing like pretty horrible jobs of pulling really long over-extracted espressos. And um, so some of those copies were pretty pretty amazing because the raw material was unique. Um, but now there's just so much more technology on preparation and, and um, you know, PID and uh, just just a, a lot more uh, technology to improve. So I, I you know, I, I guess I could romanticize that, oh, they were, everything was tasting way better back then. Um, I would say some of those Kenyas, not for espresso, but some of those Kenya coffees were exceptional. They were just they were just incredibly bright, and, and what, I kind of miss some of those coffees. <laughs> it's one of the best. It's one. It's, it's one of my favorite uh, coffee origins, and I just think um, a perfect Kenyan espresso cannot be beaten in that category. It's just for not. It's just yeah. It's phenomenal origin. But I like how you bring up blends there, and um, because I think this is something that I think will and probably should make a comeback. Because if you get certain coffees that are, you know, indeed excellent, like a ninety-point coffee and it is that it's 90 points. It's missing a few things and you sprinkle something else into it. You can really lift up a coffee. And um, I, I think there'd be purists out there who object to doing something like that. But I've been playing around with making some blends lately and they're quite extraordinary. And I, and I think they're making a comeback. Yeah, no, no, that's a good, that's a good comment. And I, I think, you know, the idea that you can layer, you know, the, the, the layering of different flavors and, and uh, you know, kind of pull in different, um, attributes that then you know it's greater than its sum and you know i think that that, that you know that that it's it's 
yeah to me i've always thought of it like kind of painting like you're creating this intricate thing with different colors and different kind of flavor attributes so it shouldn't be you know you know at least in the us uh blends have always uh, been kind of considered your lower grade material you're putting lower you know and maybe 10% really good and then 90% like okay and and that's kind of sad because i think it's it's kind of um stereotyped uh, the idea that blends can can be even better and and you know there've definitely been some you know being part of the roasters guild uh movement that started here in the us and and going to the annual event, um, there would be themes every year. One, it would be like, take one single origin and just make the best roast you can. But over the years, it seems like there have been more annual events where the, the, the goal, the challenge was to create the best blend. And when you have 16 different teams all making like their own versions of uh, the blends with the same materials and seeing how dramatically mm. like, some teams were just so much better in their blending and Post, post roast blending or whatever they're doing. So it's certainly an art that shouldn't be shied away from in specialty. So, but yeah. Well, Darren, we, I did get you on here to talk about Cup of Excellence. So let's start, let's, let's get into some of that. Could you, sure. could you start by just sort of explaining to, to listeners on this podcast who, let's assume, have never heard of the Cup, Cup of Excellence before? Could you, what is the Cup of Excellence and what is the Alliance for Coffee Excellence? Uh, well, uh, Cup of Excellence is um, um, a program that started in 1999, and it um, it basically uh, was born out of a need that um, you know that was funded by the ICO, the International Coffee Organization, uh, was looking at trying to figure out how could we get higher prices for uh, producers in, in a really low market at that point in 1999. It, it, it kind of really began in 1997, but the first COE was in Brazil in 1999. And the whole objective was uh, to pull together um, um, some smart people in the coffee industry and focus on a few countries, uh, one being Brazil, Burundi, a few other countries where we were looking at what could we do to, to um, possibly uh, get higher premiums and, and recognize producers. And what came out of that, George Howell, our founder, and Susie Spindler, the, uh, both co-founders, um, came up with this idea of a competition. So if we could identify individual producers and put them into a competition with other individual producers and then recognize and score their, their coffee, um, then we could, we, could, we could basically analyze. And if we got a lot of different cuppers and tasters to do that, then we could, we could, we could validate the, that quality. And, and at that point, Susie had thought, well, maybe, what do we do once we validated the coffee? We, you know, that's great that we know we've given it a score or we've given it a quality assessment, but how do we sell it? And she thought the idea of doing an auction would be a, a great way of letting the market talk. Let, let the market say, this is good and this is, this is really good and this is exceptional and, and, then, and then put that auction structure together. So that's what kind of birthed uh, the cup of excellence. And as soon after we did the first program in Brazil, a lot of the Central American countries were all like, oh, we want to we want to do this, too. So we brought on Guatemala and then Nicaragua and Honduras. And, and that led to uh, an expansion in, you know, in into the early 2000s of developing um, this program. And, and we've we've served in over 12 different countries around the world. And and we're trying to grow the program, but but you know the, the mission is to, to get uh, higher prices for quality to producers and then that's kind of one aspect of it, which is, yes, let's have the competition, let's have the, um, the, the, the auction, but let's, let's uh, 
let's become a bridge or a conduit for the producers and the roasters so that they can start to actually meet and get to know each other and then look at other business channels. So it's, it's market access, really. It's, the, the program was designed to, to give people, you know, more, uh, give producers especially more access into the, the global markets that are out there. So, so to summarize on that, where 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 you've got a, a compilation of coffees, we're grading it, auctioning it off. So obviously the best the, it, it scored first, and then you've you've got a ranking of one to ten, fifteen, and then auctioned off progressively. So the so the best coffee obviously attracts the highest bidders. So so forth and so forth. Um, how are the judges selected for such a competition? Because one might think across the world, okay, well you've got these coffees. How does one assess a coffee um, and give it a score? And it, how is a consensus built around which is the best coffee? Sure. And yeah, that's a great, great question. And and you know we're a membership based organization and we're a nonprofit, which I forgot to mention when I was first talking. But but the membership um, is where we derive the juries. So we have membership and maybe, gosh, at least 34 countries right now. And so those members uh, apply for membership and then they apply to be on the juries. And then what we put together is kind of a, uh, a global map of representation. So we have many, many jurists, uh, members from, from um, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, China, Australia. Um, and, and then we, we've kind of, over the years, we've kind of developed um, like kind of, like pods of, of uh, representation. So we, we would look at, you know, Asia as being one pod and then Europe and then the US. And the reason why we did that is we realized that many, especially in the beginning with the Australian market, for instance, a lot of the, the buyers that were coming and being on the juries, the things that they loved, the Americans didn't like. And the things that the Europeans liked, the Australians didn't like, or the Koreans liked acidity, but they didn't really care for body. So, what we thought is if we could put together a global jury, then we would be balancing the, the, the calibration of all the scores because we take all of the jurists and we aggregate their scores. So if we have 16 to 24 judges in any given country, we don't have a level of like, oh, they all liked acidity. So they all scored these copies really high, but these other ones that had really great body and other, other attributes didn't score so well. So one, they kind of help balance each other out and, and so that's kind of become the process for which we do. And, and obviously we really want people that are coming that are there to learn and there to buy, right? To, to be bidders in the end. So there's an economic kind of evaluation. There's a professional evaluation. Um, you have to be a cupper, you have to be a taster. Uh, it has to be part of your daily, weekly uh, job. So there's kind of an application process. And then we let observers come on who uh, essentially maybe don't have a previous experience on being a C on a COE jury, but we want to be able to build the future juries of tomorrow and new, new cuppers and tasters so that they, they can, you know, kind of get, um, get some level of education and training so that we can get them um, ready for the next year or the next jury. So that's kind of the process. So, yeah. So it's, yeah. Not, it's not just a walk on start for anyone There needs to be trained. Um, they're they're, yeah. they're, cre yeah. they're credited um, professionals that are assessing it, and um, yes. yeah, which is obviously yes. fantastic and gives the um, gives the gives gives the process validation. How many countries is the Cup of Excellence running in now? Like how many how many you know competing countries are there? Sort of thing. Yeah, well, you know, this year with with the pandemic, we we uh, we would have had eleven countries, and um, right now we will be doing 
Well, all but, you know, basically we're at nine when we uh, consider that Mexico and Honduras uh, had to cancel. And we would have been also uh, bringing on a couple of new countries that we've had to reschedule, which would have been Indonesia and Ecuador. So, so this that, year right that now, guys we be will first do... time entrance down Indonesia and Ecuador. Yes. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah very exciting. Especially the Indonesia uh, idea of, of doing something in such a large uh, producing uh, nation, you know, a nation of islands with totally different flavor profiles and, but we're, we're rescheduling both those countries, but yeah, that, that's uh, some exciting news for us to be bringing new countries on, but, but yeah. Well, had speaking of new countries in the Cup of Excellence, Ethiopia, first time, uh, first time Cup of Excellence uh, competitor, I guess, or um, the first time they're hosting the Cup of Excellence. How, how, how does that feel for you, uh, knowing the sort of um, the challenges of traceability in countries like Ethiopia? As a Cup of Excellence organization, what's the feeling like having Ethiopia compete? Uh, I mean, the one word I could say is ecstatic. Uh, we, we've been, it's been the dream of this program from the very beginning to bring on the birthplace of coffee. And, and uh, Ethiopia has an incredible genetic diversity, an incredible level of quality in all the regions. And so the fact that so we really, even despite the pandemic and everything, the fact that we pulled it off this year has been a miracle, but just in general, it's been a miracle that we've been able to, to um, have all the, the right things happen and come into alignment so that we could run the program from the, the some of the government changes with the ECX, uh, which is the government auction system. Uh, other regulatory things changed. Um, a, a new prime minister with a different approach as a government. Everything kind of came together. And it, 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 you know, that was one of the first things I was asked to do when I came into the position was, you know, your mission is to get Ethiopia on board. And everything just worked out uh, really, really well. And they've been incredible to work with. It's been really, really exciting. I've got to say, Darren, my head exploded when I saw the announcement because, uh, for one, you've you got to appreciate it as a coffee drinker. And that is that, wow, the birthplace of coffee, literally where coffee started, is finally entering, you know, the best coffee competition in in, 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 a, in a certain way. Um, and then mm-hmm. secondly, I think a, a good sort of thing to explain here is that coffee is really hard. It's, it's, it can be quite difficult to trace the original grower of a particular coffee in Ethiopia because a lot of Ethiopian coffee is submitted to a co-op um, and so the, the coffee, it might be a small producer that has trees in his backyard or just a small plantation, and it's sort of, right. in effect, blended into uh, many, many different other coffees. And so you don't really find out who the original grower of a certain coffee that you get is. With what we're yeah. doing now, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Darren, is we, we have these plantations where um, the, the, the grower is traceable, you can... It, the source you can very much find out what it is and then you got the perfect sort of uh, melting melting pot of you know delicious ethiopian coffee this is it, it it's one of the best places to grow coffee in the world because it's it's the og darren it's the, it's where it all started <laughs> so um yeah. just in, ca- in encountering those uh taking in those difficulties and the challenges of the traceability and then ethiopia and cup of excellence it's just so exciting and i really 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 hope i get to try some of those lots this year yeah yeah definitely we're i know we had a lot of uh a 
lot of interest, obviously, always uh, from Australia, and, and uh, I'm hoping that some of it lands uh, close to where you are. <laughs> so, um, and maybe we can help you out on that. We might be able to get you some some of these to to try out. You know, we well, mate, a little uh, extra lying around. <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 be able to. Uh... Perhaps we can sort something out. But in terms of in terms of current buyers of Cup of Excellence lots, there are you, you obviously have members and 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 companies, coffee companies that have supported you for long t- for a long time. And to just chuck one out there, let's think of Mariama Coffee. They're usual suspects oh, yeah. in 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 the auctions. They um they they if you look at the auction results, you, which you can go online and look at for previous auction results, um. The Mariama Coffee are usually somewhere up the top, and then you you think of places like in Australia, Campos Coffee and um, yeah, Seven Seeds and and Proud Marys and Saint Ali, who I used to work for. You know all mm-hmm. you know sus- all the usual suspects in those lots. Um, yeah, so could you could you explain the the nature of those sort of relationships and um, and you know how organ- there's organisations that have been supporting cup of excellence for a long time sure sure Uh, yeah i mean those are all like foundational uh legacy partners right like people that are you know considered many of them lifetime members in 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 our structure and and they're all ambassadors they've all gone out there and and you know spread the word as far as uh, what we're trying to do and 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 in in many cases a lot of these companies have built um certain segments of their company uh, around the COE message, and and it, it really, you know, if you think about direct trade and where that's gone over the last few years, and that conversation, you know, we we kind of we kind of know that we spawned a lot of that 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 idea of relationship building, and and these companies, you know, have have given uh, so much of their time and uh, their their effort. You know, Kintaro Mariyama has I think been on a record. 56 juries or something over the years and, and continues to, to come and, and be on there. And, and, and I think it, it inspires other companies to find out like, Hey, what's going on with that, that program. I mean, these guys have been involved for 20 years now or 10 years and, and, you know, what's driving them to, to, to be there. And if you ask them, if you ask, you know, uh, you know, Will and Mark and these people from, you know, these wonderful companies that have supported us and Russell and other people that, you know, they, they, the number one they say, the number one thing that they generally tend to say is it's the relationships. So it's, it's the fact that they've, they've been able to meet and engage with these producers at a level they couldn't have. And I mean, maybe not couldn't, but, but not as um, it advances the conversation. It, it immediately cuts to the, to the chase and it says, you know, the reason why I know these relationships and I work with these producers was all kind of uh, through this, this process. And, and if you ask the producers, uh, especially the producers, um, how gracious they are for that, that kind of like, you know, we always kind of say bringing them to the dance. We, we brought you to the, to the dance and now here you're, you're now able to make these relationships happen. But we, we could not have done it without, well, we certainly couldn't do it without the producers, but we couldn't have done it without some of these companies that have really, um, you know, Cafe Brennerit in Norway. I mean, I could go, the list, I could go on and on about people that have been supporting us and importers like Cafe Imports in the US. And oh, well, Cafe Imports is also based in Australia too. I think they have offices there as well. And, and, you know, it, it, it just, it created an opportunity and a space for people to talk about quality in a way that we could all back it up 
it wasn't just people saying that they buy great quality, but it's like literally like, oh, I know I can show you that I bought this coffee that year and I paid this much. And and that's a, a validation too. So I yeah. think uh, just on Kenta, Kentaro Mariyama, he's someone I, he's one of the coffee professionals that I look up to the most in this world. And it's because he seems to be so tenacious in his desire to just try the world's best coffee. And he's someone who's probably living comfortably now. He's got an established company. He could probably, I don't know, live a much more relaxed life. But to see his desire to still be traveling it to every different origin, to be on different juries, he just seems to be, you know, I haven't asked him personally. I met him last uh, a few years ago uh, by chance in Brazil. But he just seems to be on this quest to try all of the world's best coffee. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I don't know if you know a, little, uh, a lot about what I'm doing, Darren, but Sub-Zero Coffee is a frozen coffee reserve um, cafe, if you like. So what we do is we individually freeze, vacuum, uh, dose, vacuum seal, and then freeze portions of coffee. All these portions are, uh, I like to think, 88 points in quality and above. And so, oh, wow. and then when a customer comes in, we can serve that coffee onto them. So they'll look at a list of 50 different coffees and, um, and they can, they can choose any one they like. And some of the coffees in Australian dollars are $6, uh, and some of them are $30 and beyond. And you'll be, you'll be pleased to know, Darren, there are three cup of excellence lots on there, two, two on the menu, oh, cool. two of which are winners. So last year's winner of the Honduras Last year's winner from El Salvador and the Calibus La Sierra, which came number two oh, in, in Guatemala. Yeah. And yeah, while we're on the subject, you know, those are three unbelievably outstanding coffees. And this is probably a good transition into um, a discussion I, would, I had hoped we would talk about is that I think freezing coffee, I, don't, I, don't, I know you, you maybe you've spoken to George Howell about, you know, creating um, uh, these vintages, but it really can allow us and empower us to preserve some of these coffees. So if I could go back in time and just try all of these Cup of Excellence winners, I really would. Do you know much about, do you, do you freeze coffee at all or have you discussed it much at all, Darren? Yeah, yeah. We um, So in our own, um, and I, I've been, you know, I've been tasting some other, uh, a U.S. company that has been doing some of this work on on freezing and and like pod freezing and, and, and uh uh, pretty impressed uh, with, with, I think one of the coffees I tried was a Nanachala Ethiopia. And I, and I, I'm, I was I'm very impressed. And here in our own lab in Portland, we, we freeze and vacuum seal our, all of the uh, top 10 uh, green, green samples. And so we immediately freeze those coffees as soon as they come in. And we did an experiment two years ago where we put those all, you know, away and frozen and back sealed. And then we cup them a year later all the number ones together so we could like taste every number one and try to freeze literally them in time so that we could, you know, basically see if, if there was much perishability in the green the results are pretty amazing. And I know roasted coffee frozen is also something that, you know, obviously you're very much involved in that. Um, I, I, I really, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a strong proponent that this might be a way for us to, to get these vintages, right. When we look at, like you look at a wine vintage and say, let's do a vertical tasting of the last 10 years of silver oak. And we can do that in wine. We can, we can even do that in, in other products, but why can't we do that in coffee? So I, I think it's an exciting um, opportunity for us to be able to go back and look at, you know, obviously George has been doing the, the freezing of, of, of a lot of his Kenyas, the Mamutos and, 
and, and other coffees as well. So um, what's the response like? I mean, what, what are customers, are customers kind of like, whoa, what is this? I mean, are they, I mean, it's obviously a learning kind of uh, progression, I guess, right? Well, I guess, obviously, George, I would think in practice started doing things like this. And I was lucky enough to try some of his, I think it might have been the Mamuto or one of the Kenyans where uh, it was part of the Barista Hustle um, superlative subscription a few years back. Um, and yeah, that, that, yeah. Was, that was outstanding. But now in, uh, when we do it on a bar, so uh, in Australia, it's, it's being received. Uh, people are just dying to know more in my experience. So there's my, uh, companies like ourselves and Owner Coffee that are really um, that are implementing this sort of style of serving coffee. And uh, they've just opened up here in Melbourne and it's hard to get a seat because everyone's try- dying to try this frozen coffee. And uh, when, we, when we have pop-ups, everyone's just extremely interested in trying it. And, um, you know, even, even uh, people that don't work in the industry, I feel are mm. the most interested because there are a lot of people in the yeah. inter- industry that for, for some reason I can't explain why I would reject the theory that um, they, they seem to think there's something wrong with doing it without having tried it. And I think, you know, they just need to try it to experience the pleasures, but... I think it's people outside the industry that come in and they they look at a menu of that size and think, I haven't seen this before, and they try a coffee and uh, it could be one of the more expensive ones, and they think, that's not coffee. That's so sweet and delicious. It just challenges what I know about coffee entirely. So it, I hope that answers your question, Darren, that, uh, that it's, yeah, in yeah, summary, yeah. very well it's, it's becoming received. Uh, interesting. Uh, I think that's great. What... Uh, Question for you now, Darren. What what are some of the most memorable cup of excellence lots that you've tried in your time? I, I imagine you would have been able to cup a fair few excellent coffees, two or three. What are the most yeah. memorable you ever tried? Uh, well, you know, this year it's been interesting because we because of the the, the uh, jury situation, we we've not been able to do our juries in person internationally, and um, we've also created uh, global coffee centers. Uh, actually, Campos is one of the centers uh, where their cuppers are identifying coffees. And, and Portland here is a center. And I, because of the scarcity of being able to get jurists, uh, you know, obviously to get together in a group, um, I've been cupping through the 2020 coffees of El Salvador, um, all of Ethiopia, um, 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 not Guatemala. I wasn't able to do that. But um, and then just finished uh, yesterday, Costa Rica. And so, I mean, these are all fresh on my mind because they just literally happened. And, and I will say that the number two, um, Ethiopia, the number two and the number three were amazing uh, washed uh, copies, uh, even though predominantly most of the top 10 were natural. Those really stood out for me in terms of their just their elegance and that lemon grass kind of quality of the Yirgacheppe or Sadamas. Um, some of these were coming from Arsi, um, you know, like um, kind of in the South, Shakiso in that area. So the number two, number three were just outstanding for me. Some of the highest scoring copies that I, that I did. And then um, ye- yesterday um, we, we, in the, you know, with Costa Rica, we've got the washed round or sessions, uh, anaerobic, natural. So, I mean, pretty much every session had different. But there was a wash coffee um, yesterday that's probably one of the highest scoring coffees I've scored in a long time. And it was like, you know, upper 94s. Um, I don't wow. know who it is. I don't know the results yet. 
Um, but it was a geisha, washed geisha, um, and just so crystal clear. Um, obviously, you can kind of tell I have a I have a thing for washed copies, but um, and then I believe it, I might be wrong. It's number twelve or number seventeen. Again, Ethiopia was an anaerobic, and we got to interview the farmer and ask him about uh, from uh, from Testy Coffee. Um, like, how did you how did you do this? This coffee is just so unique. And he's like, oh, I just spent a lot of time researching other people that were doing anaerobic, and this is what we came up with. And it was it's it's really uh, unique and and flavorful. So those are definitely ones that are on my radar right now. Um, and historically, oh boy, that's, I mean, I do remember tasting uh, Puente in Honduras the first, the first year that we started to know about uh, the Caballeros family. And that coffee was just like the biggest grape juice, you know, just so much depth. So, mm. so I, I'll always remember that, that coffee just being exceptional. Um, um, yeah, that, 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 that definitely was 2000, I think four, 2003 or 2004. Um, I, yeah, I won't, I'll never forget that, that coffee. And, and um, yeah, so that, I mean, I could probably go on. But <laughs> the, uh, the winner from the Honduras last year, the Santa Lucia, Santa Lucia, um, in which Mark Dundon, owner of Seven Seeds, part owns the farm. Um, that's one of the most floral clean, juicy, delicious coffees I've ever had. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. I've, I think I've got two or three doses left, but I think I'll probably just enjoy those for me. But they're, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an exquisite coffee. Um, you mentioned before in Ethiopia, you obviously had, you, you, you cited that there was, some go- there was a change of government and some changes in regulations. What are some of the um, obstacles that each jurisdiction, let's say, might... Uh, what obstacles arise that sort of make Cup of Excellence competitions harder to run in countries? Well, with, with Ethiopia, the, you know, the, the, even the idea that you would have one exclusive exporter that would manage all of the export and the milling of the coffee um, it is a, a normal thing that we would do in any, any other country. But in Ethiopia, that, that, uh, it, let's say an exporter has their own farm they're a private uh, farm and they have their own exporting license. In, in the law of Ethiopia, in, in, uh, in the, as far as the Coffee and Tea Authority goes, it's, it's not legal for me as exporter A to basically sell to exporter B. So in a sense, even though there would be no monetary value with us um, exchanging the coffee to give it uh, to a private exporter, to give it to the official exporter in Ethiopia, which in this case is Abdullah Bagersh, a very well-known uh, farmer and exporter and um, responsible for um, you know, those, those early coffees that I think Joseph Brodsky was buying, that the Misty Valley, early Ethiopian coffees. And, and, and so in, under the current law, that, that's not possible. It, it, you know, you can't exchange that, that there's, there are uh, legal practices there. And we were able to work with the Coffee and Tea Authority to, to let that happen in this process for the greater good of, of Ethiopia producers. So that would be an example of, of a difficulty that we em- embraced. And, and um, um, the, even the movement of coffee in some, some cases is, is uh, you know, has to be permitted and ECX has to be able to validate the quality before coffees would move from let's say Jima to Addis to be milled. 
And we were able to kind of work through that to let them understand like in other origins, this is just, this is the way things go. And we have to work within your rules and be respectful of, of your, your policies and your regulations. But it, 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 we can't have 25 exporters of COE or 28 in this case with 28 winners. So, you know, you got to work with us a little bit. And, and it took some, you know, some lobbying and some, some, um, some you know, discussions and uh, to understand this is how our template works. So, you know, we'll do the best we can within your rules, but can you work with us? And, and again, it was a pleasure to, to work with uh, Dr. Ardunia, the director of the Copping Tea Authority and, and all of the people at ECX and our, our partners in Feed the Future who, you know, is backed by the USAID program. And um, so, you know, it, th that would be a, 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 probably the biggest impediment that we thought we would face. And, and in other countries, you know, I, I can't really say that we had, you know, any really big obstacles other than um, the idea that we, that we would want to have uh, some control over the warehousing of coffee so that we know that um, uh, it makes it easier for producers to actually enter their lots. They don't have to drive 30 miles or, you know, a, a number of kilometers away to be able to even drop off their coffee. So the, 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 the availability to make it as easy as possible for producers, we've had some pushback on that sometimes where it's just different logistical headaches. Do you so. think, do you th are there any particular countries that haven't competed, that haven't entered yet that you would like to see? Like immediately coming at, coming to mind is Yemen. I mean, I know it's very, it's probably decades away before you could even think about that being a reality in a country like Yemen, but there'd just be so much excellent coffee to un to discover in a country like that. And it's just, a, it's a bit disappointing that given their political situation and, and, and now COVID-19, um, yeah, yeah. It, it seems very far away. But are there any countries like that that you'd like to see a, a cup of excellence auction? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a, a fairly long list of where, where I'd like to go, uh, you know, Myanmar, um, you know, I, I think Congo is a discussion that we've had on and off. And, and again, we're dealing with a lot of political problems and, and matters of war and, you know, just uh, difficulties. Um, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in Thailand. I, I, I formerly was buying coffees in Thailand and thought that it doesn't get a fair shake. Um, there are some, some ec excellent coffees there. But Yemen is interesting you bring up because we, we do a private uh, collection auction and we did a, uh, last year we worked with Kima Coffee, um, uh, UK based. Yeah, and we're doing a second year with them. Actually, uh, starting this Friday, we'll be going through a hundred uh, samples of producers uh, pre-selection and we'll be doing an international uh, phase in July with a number of GCC, the global coffee centers. And, but that sparked a conversation with um, with a number of people on the ground in Yemen, including Mukhtar from uh, Porto Mocha and obviously Ferris from, from Kima, that maybe we can look to possibly do a 2021 or a 2022 Yemen uh, competition. Um, we may not be able to do it in Yemen, but we may be able to do it in Jordan or Qatar or other other countries. And, and um, so we're, we're floating that idea and looking for funding uh, to put it together and and to put to, to put together an organizing committee of all of the the stakeholders in Yemen that that would be involved and interested. So um, I would say that you know as far as any ranking of where I'd really love to go next, Yemen is pretty high on the list, and I, I think we can we'd have to be creative. 
but I think we can, we can, we're working our way towards it, even by just doing these private collections to, to move to something more of a net as a national program. Um, I would love to get Bolivia back. Mm. Um, you know, we, we lost Bolivia uh, mainly due to political issues and, um, you know, that it was just an issue with our funding coming from a U.S. based organization and, and their government not really appreciating our government. And unfortunately, we weren't able to, to continue. But I, I think Bolivia would be amazing. Sorry, if there's any noise there. Um, well, it's interesting but, you bring up uh, Bolivia because I uh, interviewed Dan- Daniela Rodriguez for this podcast not two days ago. Oh. Um, and I was lucky yeah. enough. I was lucky enough to go visit some of her farms back in 2018. And mm-hmm. Yeah, outstanding coffee origin, and from what Danielle described to me, there's some ver- some new and very exciting coffees coming from Bolivia uh, in the harvest that's just begun. I think in the last week. Um, and oh wow, going back to Yemen, um, I should I should I, sh- I should know about the the, the link between Kima and um, the Cup of Excellence because because the first coffee that we released online that we are selling is uh, a Yemeni coffee from. Um, for that that was purchased through the Kim auction. So, uh, and it's oh, from, cool. from from a, a producer called Abdul Salam Al Habba. But outstanding coffee, and I've got this, I've got this obsession brewing with Yemeni coffee, and um, uh, yeah, there's just so much there, and I'd love to see a formal cup of excellence there next year because it would just be good for the industry, and uh, that's coffee that people should know about. Yemeni coffee is just yeah, so underrated. Mm. And and you know, I feel like we're in a we're in a little bit of a struggle uh, due to climate and due to other uh, situations in terms of genetic diversity. And we don't even know what, you know, we're, we're doing some work right now. Uh, um, so we'll be announcing the results fairly soon, but we've been doing some, um, some DNA testing of Ethiopia and um, we're, we're, you know, getting some preliminary results that look really exciting. But this uh, this is something that we're looking at, you know, down the road. Like, what does Yemen have that um, that you know, as a cult as a cultivar, it's the first historical step out of Ethiopia into production. And there's there's you know, kind of a race for time. If we see, you know, cot uh, uh, taking over in, in an industry or or coffee being less cultivated, there's a there's a genetic you know kind of um, uh, possibility of us to learn a lot that we just don't currently know. And we know it through flavor, we know it through region, we know it through altitude for sure. But what about the genetic diversity that Yemen has? Because if you look at, you know, what we've said, or at least World Coffee Research has said, is that, you know, Ethiopia re- represents 97% of genetic diversity and the rest of the world is 3%. And do we really know that that's true if we haven't even identified what's going on in Yemen? And you know, maybe only a few strains uh, were making their way from Ethiopia into Yemen, but maybe there were hundreds. We just we don't know, and and that's that's stuff that I would love to be able to find out. But if there if it's a if it's an origin uh, uh, similar to Kenya, where there's less and less production every year, or El Salvador that's facing a lot of challenges, it's kind of a race to time to figure out what what do we have, what do they have, what could we be. You know, is there another geisha out there in a, in a way that we don't even know about because we haven't been able to identify these? So, um, so that's kind of more of the scientific side of it, but it does it does affect quality and and uh, you know, I just feel like there's a treasure trove there as well. So, yeah, it's interesting you bring up genetics, and that that's for me an idea I've had for a whole other podcast, but so so I won't go into it now. But you mentioned climate in that answer, and 
obviously that's a huge threat to the coffee industry. Um, what, 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 in your experience, are you projecting that there will be a substantial decline in coffee production due to rising temperatures in the global climate? Well, I, I mean, any of the climatologists that I've you know seen do presentations or discuss it uh, have pretty much said that there'll be certain areas that will not be uh, it, it it will not be conducive uh, for uh, arabica. Um, and, and now with robusta, I don't really know, but I think that something just came out today about that uh, robusta might not be as resilient as we think in terms of climate. Um, I haven't read the whole article, but it came out in Daily Coffee News. And um, so I, I think, yes, now it may mean that other areas might become more conducive for growing coffee, but you know, it's not like we can grow coffee in one year and all of a sudden produce it. It takes four or five years sometimes to, 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 to get the results of all that work. So I think it's too much of a gamble to think that somehow we'll, we'll squeak through without, without any problems. I think we'll, we already are facing problems. We, are, we already know, producers are already telling us that the, the, the types of weather changes they're experiencing are directly impacting their crop. So, it's, it's, and, and for example, like a one or two degree difference from harvest to harvest, I, I guess you could say, like if it was, if it was one or two degrees higher uh, one year than, a, than the previous year, the notice in coffee, the the difference in coffee flavor, it's not really negligible, is it? Like you can, it's noticeably different the the temperature around um, in which coffee is grown. So, um, I guess you could no, you could even notice different flavors over time as the right, temperature right, right. increases. Yeah, and it's it's probably more about the effects of maturation, or. Is it speeding up maturation? Is it slowing down maturation? And, and if that's the case, then we know that the, the development of uh, sugars and carbohydrates in the, in, the, in the coffee could be affected. And then therefore, yeah, you definitely are going to have, um, you know, effects and flavor. So, yeah. yeah. Well, well, Darren, we're nearing, we're nearing the end of the, uh, of the time that I have with you today. Um, so I, I mm-hmm. did want to ask for, for your, uh, as the final question for your, and your closing remarks, what would you like to see more of in the coffee industry? So you, you've been working in it for quite a long time. You're in the senior position with the Cup of Excellence, which I guess is an, an authority for high-quality coffee. In that mm. position, what would you like to see more of going into the future that would, be, that would be conducive to supporting a better specialty coffee or even just coffee industry? Yeah, in general. Well, I, you know, the number one thing for me is uh, higher prices for producers uh, when we know that their cost of production is is certainly not giving them a fair shake, a fair margin. So that that's the biggest change I'd like to see, um, without a doubt. Number number one is a change in the economic equation. It uh, it's just it's not it it's just not um, it's not been done right for generations, and it, it needs to change. And we all need to stand up and, and kind of have that conversation and, and force that, that change. Um, and with that, I think it also means new voices. New, you know, we, we, there's kind of a, you know, there's that sense of like the old guard that kind of is, you know, arbiting what is quality and what is specialty and letting, letting them, or, you know, I probably am victim of being someone that's probably one of those voices too, but we need some new voices. We need, we need some new conversations and new, um, new um, views. And, and I, I think that um, I know growing up 
uh, I pretty much grew up in the coffee industry and uh, from a college student to now. And I always was afraid to be that person in the room to say, is that true, really? I mean, you know, you're the, you're the veteran in the industry. And so we all just kind of, you know, kind of bow down to that. But maybe that's not true. You know, maybe maybe we need to revisit that. And I think I think we're at a time right now. Obviously, there's just so much going on in the world that that you know this is a time for us to to listen to to new voices and and uh, new new uh, uh, younger producers, uh, letting them innovate, uh, giving them that space um, in all segments of the industry, not just on the producer side. But um, you know, I I think like the gentleman I spoke to in Ethiopia. I, I mean. Frankly, when I asked him, I'm like, you you created an incredible anaerobic process. You must have been you must have been doing this for years, and then you just finally shared it with the rest of the world. And he's like, no, I just Googled it, <laughs> you know. And and then he he didn't feel it was okay for him to say, I'm not an expert in this, but I got lucky and I did a good job, and I can repeat it again. And that's innovation. And and I think that was so refreshing that not having him say, oh yeah, I've got a team of people and. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how I did it. He was like, no, I can, I, I'd be happy to talk about everything I did. That was so refreshing. You know, that, that, that's what we need, you know? Yeah. And it, I find your, the first part to this answer about coffee prices really interesting to start with is that um, if, if you're, if you're not someone that works in coffee and you're just an avid coffee drinker, the difference in someone's life, if you're paying an extra dollar or two for your a standard cup of coffee or going out and buying something perhaps a bit more ex- exquisite. I think you're supporting something so great by doing that. Not only are you getting the transactions worth it because you're getting an outstanding cup of coffee, I'm hoping, but the you're supporting something so much, so much better. And then to answer the second, <clears throat> the, the second part of your answer, Darren, I, I find really interesting about, you know, the challenging the norms even at origins so there's so many so many spheres in which you can view this and there's 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 us here in australia you in oregon or 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 the gentleman mm-hmm. you described mm-hmm. in ethiopia the the status quo or the norms can be challenged almost everywhere in the supply chain and i guess if it is over, over the coming years we'll, we'll we'll be working in a much better industry yeah 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 and and i i, I think it, i think we're in a window of time where that that kind of um that possibility is uh, stronger than ever before. So, um, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Okay. Well, Darren, it's been so great to have you on the podcast, and I, for one, have learned so much, and I, th- I, I really hope that 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 people listening um, take in it as much as I have, and um, yeah, I really hope that you you get all these different countries like Indonesia and Yemen in, into the Cup of Excellence soon, and. And we bring back someone like uh, Bolivia, who you know maybe there's a chance that Evo Morales, the president of the time, is is no longer. Although I mean, I think he's making a attempt for a comeback, trying but, to make a comeback. <laughs> yeah. So let's just hope. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's just hope uh, common sense and humanity prevails there. But Darren, so so wonderful Agreed. to have you on, and and thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you so much. It was great. I appreciate it. No worries.